recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 19th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We were on the road for um, 10 days until about midnight Wednesday, or, or very early Thursday morning. A few weeks ago, I had promised to present the articles, the three-part series, trying to expose the protocols of the so-called learned elders of Zeon as a forgery, which were published in the London Times several months after the first um, the first attempts at refuting the forgeries were published in early 1921. So fortunately, tonight we are at that point where we are going to do that. So most of this presentation is actually going to be from that three-part series from Philip Graves. And I have some notes, but I will reserve a more in-depth refutation of Philip Graves' articles for next week. And mostly that's because, it's not because I didn't have enough time to prepare, to, to prepare, but it is because I want to get all three parts of the Philip Graves material and his claims against the protocols into tonight's presentation without going over my time limit again on the Christogenia radio streams. In our last segment of the Protocols of Satan, we had presented those parts of Chapter 10 of Nestor Webster's book, World Revolution, which demonstrated that much of the underlying political philosophy found in the so-called Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zeon was actually expressed long before the protocols were ever published by many of the key figures in the European secret societies of the 18th and 19th centuries. To do this, Webster had compared some of the writings of Adam Weishaupt, Piccolo Tigre, Mikhail Bakunin, and Vladimir Lenin, as well as other revolutionaries to statements that had been made in the protocols. Finding so many of the same sentiments expressed in the protocols also expressed in the writings of these people from these secret societies and other revolutionaries. One can only come to the conclusion that a conspiracy which is greater than any particular secret society or the agenda of any particular revolutionary was indeed lurking in the background, which gave fuel to them all, which gave its purpose to them all. Webster acknowledged that such a conspiracy must have existed, but she did not readily accept the exclusively Jewish nature of that conspiracy. However, she did admit later Jewish involvement 
in both the conspiracy and in the revolutionary movements which the underlying philosophies had generated. Now, we postulated last week that the only reason why, and this is her reason, why she refused to acknowledge the Jewish nature of the conspiracy before the year 1820 was for a lack of documentary evidence. And we postulated that that was because before their, their political emancipation by Napoleon, the Jews could not be in the foreground. If they were in the foreground, they would have been seen and perceived as invaders, as alien upstarts overthrowing European governments, rather than as innocent bystanders seeking their own liberty under the ideals of the French Revolution. That is how the Jews presented themselves. And once they acquired their emancipation, then, as Webster herself admits, they were overtly active almost immediately in all of these secret societies, in all of these revolutionary groups, and in all of these subversive political movements. That is not a coincidence. They were behind those subversive movements all along. They just could not take an over role until they acquired their emancipation. We have already discussed at length the earliest attempts on the part of the Jews to discredit the protocols as so-called forgeries. Nestor Webster had also aptly pointed out the obvious posturing and glaring deficiencies in these attempts, which were centered around the testimonies of frauds and traitors, such as Catherine Rodziwill and Count Duchela. Further investigation into the backgrounds and antics of both of these characters reveals that they are even far worse than what we have already presented here, although we are not so certain that we should continue to elaborate on these already discredited witnesses. As Webster had stated, there is no reason that the Jews should have continued to put them forth as witnesses against the protocols, except to purposely distract attention from the real evidence of their most plausible source, which was buried in the secret societies themselves. So, to Nesta Webster, the Jewish posturing in their attempts to discredit the protocols was the first indication that the protocols must have been legitimate even if their original author may never be precisely determined. As we had previously explained, perhaps six or eight months after statements by Will and Dushela in reference to the supposed origins of the protocols were first made public, there had appeared yet another avenue by which the Jews sought to discredit them in the form of a series of three articles by a British journalist named Philip Graves. 
fortuitously for the Jews, in Constantinople, graves had been presented, supposedly, by a Russian, with a copy of a book, which was said to be quite rare, and Webster really showed that it wasn't as rare as imagined, a book by Maurice Jolie, a 19th century French lawyer and bureaucrat, which in English would be called The Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. Jolie had written a dialogue as a treatise against the administration of Napoleon III of France. Just as fortuitously, Graves, or at least the person that supplied this book to Graves, is purported to have been familiar with the protocols not long after they were first published in English. And therefore, Graves was therefore able to set the Jolie book forward as the source of the protocols in a three-part series which he had written for the London Times in August of 1921. In earlier segments of the series on the protocols, we had promised to present the Graves articles, and we shall do that this evening, along with some of our own comments. And the following is excerpted from the London Times for Tuesday, August 16, 1921. We will also, when we post this program at Christagenia this evening, we will also supply a um, French-language copy of the dialogue itself and facsimile copies along with this text to the Graves articles. From the London Times, Tuesday, August 16th, the headline read, the headline to this article, it wasn't the newspaper, the newspaper itself, that headline was probably something far different. This is from pages 9 and 10 and served as the headline to Graves' article on, beginning on page 9. And it read, Jewish World Plot, an exposure, the source of the protocols, truth at last. And of course, if a newspaper tells you all those things, it's lying. The so-called protocols of the elders of Sion. This is the introduction written by the newspaper's editor, who is unnamed. The so-called protocols of the elders of Sion were published in London last year under the title of The Jewish Peril. This book is a translation of a book published in Russia in 1905 by Sergei Nihilus, a government official who professed to have received from a friend a copy of a summary of the minutes of a secret meeting held in Paris by a Jewish organization that was plotting to overthrow civilization in order to establish a Jewish world state. Look around you. These protocols attracted little attention until after the Russian Revolution of 1917, when the appearance of the Bolshevists, among whom were many Jews, professing and practicing political doctrines that at some points resembled those 
advocated in the protocols led many to believe that Nihilus's alleged discovery was genuine. The protocols were widely discussed and translated into several European languages. Their authenticity has been frequently attacked, and many arguments have been adduced for the theory that they are a forgery. And Nihilus's book was entitled, at first, He, meaning the Antichrist, He is Near at the Door. And Nihilus's Nihilus's book was certainly prophetic, or the protocols were certainly real, because just as Nihilus had warned, Satan conquered Russia in 1917, and tens of millions of Russians and Ukrainians who were Christians, who were white, and at least Christians in name, died as a result and half of Europe was consumed as a result. And things unfolded exactly as the protocols had said. There was a, um, a discussion on the Christoginia Forum this week against the book Camp of the Saints, written by another Frenchman. And Camp of the Saints predicted exactly what is happening to Europe today with these massive flotillas of black hordes invading France and Britain. Well, I look back at the Southern Poverty Law Center review of um, Camp of the Saints yesterday, and it's incredible how shrilly the Jews can denounce a book and when the events presaged in that book come true, and you read the Jew denunciation of the book, it's just incredible how big a liar Satan can be. It's absolutely amazing. I I would advise people to go look at the um, description of the book Camp of the Saints, and then go look at the Southern Poverty Law Center article. You could not write a better plot for a movie the way this article decries this book, and we could see in the newspapers every day, 40 years after the book was written, that it was true, that it was right, that its author was correct all along. And the Jews would still deny it. To continue with our our introduction to Philip Graves' articles, these protocols... Attracted little attention, and I'm sorry, I've already read that paragraph. I'll reread it. These protocols attracted little attention until after the Russian Revolution of 1917, when the appearance of the Bolshevists, among whom were many Jews, professing and practicing political doctrines that in some points resembled those advocated in the protocols, and actually it was much more than some points, led many to believe that Nihilus's alleged discovery was genuine. The protocols were widely discussed 
and translated into several European languages. Their authenticity has been frequently attacked, and many arguments have been adduced for the theory that they are a forgery. And let me say in response to that, that Nesta Webster showed us that there were at least as many points in common between the protocols and the writings of Vladimir Lenin than there were between the protocols and the writings of Maurice Jolie. So this Times article seems to be trying to dismiss that fact while it clings to the other, that the protocols are a forgery of Jolie. It can be just as easily claimed that the protocols are a forgery of Lenin, except that the protocols clearly existed before the Bolshevik Revolution. So, if you want to prove anything, then Lenin either plagiarized Jolie, or the protocols are true, and represent a Jewish conspiracy against Western society. But the newspaper editors would never go in that direction. In the following articles, our Constantinople correspondent, for the first time, presents conclusive proof that the document is, in the main, a clumsy plagiarism. And, of course, that's a total misrepresentation. That's their claim. He has forwarded us a copy of the French book from which the plagiarism is made. The British Museum has a complete copy of the book, which is entitled, and they give the title in, in French, and it's the Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, and was published at Brussels in 1865. Shortly after its publication, the author, Maurice Jolie, a Paris lawyer and publicist was arrested by the police of Napoleon III and sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. Now, of course, we do not agree with any of the conclusions given in this introduction to the Philip Graves articles. As we have seen, Nesta Webster also professed there is indeed some material in the protocols which is practically identical to passages from Maurice Shelley's dialogue. However, that material is only a small part of the total material of the protocols, and most of the material in the protocols is not found in the Jolie book in any form. In turn, most of the material in the Jolie book is not found in the protocols in any form. Webster describes some of the remaining material in the protocols as prophetic, the material in the protocols which is not found in Jolie, and that indeed seems to have been. And she explained that it could not be accounted for if the protocols were merely a forgery on the part of Sergei Nihilus or anyone else. You could take all of the material that's, that, that's duplicated from or, or in Jolie's book out of the protocols, and you still have a very prophetic document 
explaining European politics all through the 19th and 20th centuries. That's the end of the introduction by the London Times. The first of the three parts of Philip Graves' article is titled, A Literary Forgery. And Graves' name is not on the original articles. It only says, from our Constantinople correspondent. And it begins, there is one thing about Constantinople that is worth your while to remember, said a diplomat to the writer in 1908. If you only stay here long enough, you will meet many men who matter, and you may find the key to many strange secrets. Yet I, who is ostensibly Philip Graves, yet I must confess that when the discovery, which is the theme of these articles, was communicated to me, I was at first incredulous. Mr. X, who brought me the evidence, was convinced. Read this book through, he said, and you will find irrefutable proof that the protocols of the learned elders of Sion is a plagiarism. And of course, the book is Machiavelli's, uh, I'm sorry, is Maurice Jolie's dialogue between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. But Philip Graves admits ignorance of the writer and ignorance of the actual title of the book, as we shall see. And the book is written in French, so we're not told if we have an English translation or if Philip Graves read French. But he does repeat some quotes in French later on in these articles, so we have to assume that he actually was capable of reading French. Mr. X, Graves continues who does not wish his real name to be known, is a Russian landowner with English connections, orthodox by religion. He is, in political opinion, a constitutional monarchist. He came here as a refugee after the final failure of the white cause in South Russia. He had long been interested in the Jewish question as far as it concerned Russia, had studied the protocols, and during the period of Denikin's ascendancy, had made investigations with the object of discovering whether any occult Masonic organization, such as the protocols speak of, existed in southern Russia. The only such organization was a monarchist one. The discovery of the key to the problems of the protocols came to him by chance. And, of course, Nesta Webster scoffs at this. In her book, Secret Societies and Subversive Movements, Nesta Webster says of this Mr. X, who Philip Graves describes, why these allusions to Constantinople as the place to find the key to dark secrets. To the mysterious Mr. X, who does not wish his real name to be known, and to the anonymous ex-officer, which we'll get to later, from of the Akrana, the Akrana being 
the, the czar's secret police, from whom by mere chance he bought the very copy of the dialogues used for the fabrications of the protocols by the Akrana itself, although this fact was unknown to the officer in question. In other words, Mr. X made this discovery that this was the original copy of the dialogues that the Akrani used to produce the protocols, but he was not told that by the officer that he supposedly received the book from. It's all a story, right? Why further should Mr. X, if he were a Russian landowner, orthodox by religion, and a constitutional monarchist be so anxious to discredit his fellow monarchists by making the outrageous assertion that the only occult Masonic organization such as the protocol speak of, that is to say, a Machiavellian system of an abominable kind, which he had been able to discover in southern Russia, was a monarchist one. And that's a very good point because the constitutional monarchists would be absolutely adverse to the system of Machiavelli or the philosophy set forth by the protocols themselves. They would also be absolutely adverse to the operations and agendas of the Masonic lodges and the secret societies, or at least they should be if they were really constitutional monarchists. It, it's like saying um, it, it's like saying Christian abortion clinic. It would be an oxymoron for all practical purposes. Greatest subtitles the next paragraph or the next section of this article as the Swiss original. A few months ago, he bought a number of old books from a former officer of the Akrana, political police, who had fled to Constantinople, ostensibly after the revolution, right? Among these books was a small volume in French, lacking the title page. Now Graves ad admits not knowing the title of the book for that reason, or claims not to know the title of the book for that reason. Lacking the title page, with dimensions of five and a half by three and three quarters inches, it had been cheaply rebound. On the letter back is printed in Latin capitals the word Jolie, which he spells as J-O-L-I in English. Now, even though Graves describes that, he never claims to know who the author is. He never mentions the author. He claims to not know who the book is written by. So this is um, two red flags. Graves is um, claiming not to know who wrote this book and not even to know its title. We're going to discuss that later on and definitely at the end of tonight's presentation. Graves goes on to say, the preface entitled Simple Advertisement is dated Geneva, October 15, 1864. The book contains 324 pages, of which numbers 315 to 322 inclusive follow page 24, and the only copy known to Mr. X. Now, let me say that Graves, in the introduction to this article, 
Graves supposedly sent a copy of the French book from which the plagiarism is made. And the article's editors say that the British Museum has a complete copy of the book with the same, which, and then they give the title, which Graves' copy is allegedly missing. And they say that that was published at Brussels in 1865, just to make that note, because Graves or Graves' editors certainly did know the title of the book and had a later publication of it. Or, or actually, perhaps the later publication of it was in the British Museum. The book contains 324 pages, of which numbers 315 through 322, inclusive, follow page 24, in the only copy known to Mr. X, perhaps owing to a mistake when the book was rebound. And all of this seems to give Graves' story about the possession of this book credibility. Both the paper and the type are characteristic of the 60s and 70s, and he puts that in quotes as if he got it from an expert, of the last century. These details are given in the hope that they may lead to the discovery of the title of the book, well, that the editors had no problem, allegedly, figuring out the title of the book, and only Graves had to write that in his article as if he didn't know it, and as if it would make his article more credible for some reason. He goes on to say, Mr. X believes it must be rare, since, had it not been so, the protocols would have speedily been recognized as a plagiarism by anyone who had read the original. And we have the testimony of Nesta Webster that there were many copies of this book available, and that it was not rare. Here Graves feigns ignorance of the title of the Jolie book, which the editor of his articles had included in the introduction to the article. Evidently, this article was made to appear as if Graves treated it like a news story, like it was urgently published because he had passed this copy, this finished story, along to his editors. He had filed it in newspaper parlance without having done any background research into the nature of what he had come to possess. He writes these articles supposedly without even searching for what sort of work this may have been. He only draws conclusions from the book itself. Now, the conclusions seem to be valid or perhaps he's not being honest because he must have had a very good background in French politics from the time of Napoleon III to really be able to deduce the things that he deduced about this book. And on that note, he should have been more curious about finding out who wrote the book and what its title was before he finished his articles. This isn't... Um, an emergency situation here where all the Jews are going to die tomorrow if we can't disprove the protocols, but he certainly seems to have rushed it out like that were so, and it certainly wasn't. In fact, the Jews were sitting pretty, pretty, pretty comfortably in all of the Western European nations in 1921. 
Graves continues that the later is a fake, speaking about the protocols. Or, or I'm sorry, speaking about the copy of the Jolie book, which had come into his possession, that the later is a fake could not be maintained for an instant by anyone who had seen it. Its original possessor, the, the old Akrana officer, did not remember where he obtained it and attached no importance to it. Mr. X, glancing at it one day, was struck by a resemblance between a passage which had caught his eye and a phrase in the French edition of the Protocols, and he gives the edition published in French. He followed up the clue and soon realized that the Protocols were to a very large extent as much a paraphrase of the Geneva original as he attests that Geneva and the date are all he purports to know about this book, as the published version of a war office or foreign office telegram is a paraphrase of the ciphered original. And this is simply not true. Actually, only a very small portion of the material in the protocols can be found in the Jolie book. It is striking that Graves' Mr. X supposedly did so much research into the contents of this book, and Gray was able to produce the title of the French printing of the protocols for this article, yet neither man knew the title of the Jolie book, knew who its author was, or cared to discover it. Before receiving the book from Mr. X, I was, as I have said, incredulous. I'm still incredulous. I did not believe that Sergine Nihilus' protocols were authentic. They explained too much by the way, by the theory of a vast Jewish conspiracy. Professor Nihilus' account of how they were obtained was too melodramatic to be credible, and it was hard to believe that the real learned elders of Zion would not have produced a more intelligent political scheme than the crude and theatrical subtitle subtleties, I'm sorry, subtleties of the protocols. But I could not have believed had I not seen that the writer who supplied Nihilus with his originals was a careless and shameless plagiarist. And we will discuss this charge at much greater length here in the near future, I, I pray, as soon as next week. The Geneva book is a thinly veiled attack on the despotism of Napoleon III in the form of a series of 25 dialogues divided into four parts. Now, in order to arrive at that conclusion, Graves must have had a very good knowledge of the rule of Napoleon III, which was 50 to 60 years, which ended 50 or 60 years before Graves was writing this. I don't remember the exact date. The speakers are Montesquieu and Machiavelli. In the brief preface to his book, the anonymous author, even though Jolie stamped right on the back and Graves doesn't put it together as the author's name, the anonymous author points out that it contains passages which are applicable to all governments. 
but it particularly personifies a political system which has not varied in its application for a single day since the fatal and alas too distant date when it was enthroned its references to the housemanization of paris to the repressive measures and policy of the French emperor, to his wasteful financial system, to his foreign wars, to his use of secret societies in his foreign nation, for example, his notorious relations with the Carbonari, and his suppression of them in France, to his relations with the Vatican, and to his control of the press, are unmistakable. Now, it is odd that Graves, referring to the dialogues as the Geneva book, because that is where it was published, his copy anyway, did not stop to consider researching what the reference to Jolie was, which he described as being inscribed on the back cover, and did not have the time to research sufficiently to find this book's title. Yet, he is supposed to have nevertheless understood that the book was a thinly-veiled attack on the despotism of Napoleon III. I looked at the book. I'm going to publish a PDF copy of it with this podcast this evening, one layer finished. And I have a PDF copy obtained from archive.org, which was evidently the copy, Geneva 1564, or I'm sorry, 1864, that Grace is talking about. And in that, I searched, and, and there is only one mention of a Napoleon found in the dialogues. And I don't read French, but I ran the paragraph through Google Translation, Google, um, the Google Online Translator, and, and it certainly seems to be a reference to the first Napoleon, not to Napoleon III. Now, of course, I don't read French, so I can't scan the book for contemporary references, and perhaps Graves did, but there are no direct references in the book to Napoleon III. The next section of Graves' article is subtitled Machiavelli-Napoleon. The Geneva book, or as it will henceforth be called, the Geneva Dialogues, opens with the meeting of the spirits of Montesquieu and Machiavelli on a desolate beach in the world of shades. Now, shades in pre-20th century literature, anyway, means spirits. It's another word for ghosts or spirits. After a lengthy exchange of civilities, Montesquieu asks Machiavelli why, from an ardent Republican, he had become the author of The Prince and the founder of that somber school of thought which has made all crowned heads your disciples, but which is well fitted to justify the worst crimes of tyranny. Machiavelli replies that he is a realist and proceeds to justify the teaching of the prince and to explain its applicability to Western European states of 1864. In the first six Geneva Dialogues, Montesquieu is given a chance of argument of which he avails himself. In the seventh dialogue, which, according to 
graves corresponds to the 5th, 6th, 7th, and part of the 8th protocols. He gives Machiavelli permission to describe at length how he would solve the problem of stabilizing political societies. Quote-unquote, incessantly disturbed by the spirit of anarchy and revolution. Henceforth, Machiavelli, or in reality, Napoleon III, speaking through Machiavelli, or at least portrayed to be speaking, has the lion's share of the dialogue. Montesquieu's contributions thereto become more and more exclamatory. He is profoundly shocked by Machiavelli, Napoleon's, defense of an able and ruthless dictatorship. But his counterarguments grow briefer and weaker. At times, indeed, the author of Le Esprit de Louis is made to cut as poor a figure as, in small settlement, does Dr. Watson when he attempts to talk criminology to Sherlock Holmes. Dialogue and Protocol is the subtitle of our next section. The protocols follow almost the same order as the dialogues. This is Gray's assessment. Dialogues, one, I'm not challenging it. I'm just making a statement because I cannot verify it because I don't read French. Dialogues 1 through 17 generally correspond with protocols 1 through 19. There are a few exceptions to this. One is the 18th protocol, where, together with paraphrases of passages from the 17th dialogue, there is an echo of a passage in the 25th Geneva Dialogue. This appears on page 68 of the English edition of the Protocols. He gives the passage in French. I'm not going to try to read it. As in order to exist, the prestige of power must occupy such a position that the people can say among themselves, if only the king knew about it, or when the king knows about it. Now, the French, I've checked, and it, it, it sort of corresponds to that, but Google Translate is only so good. It's pretty weak, actually. The last five protocols do not contain so many paraphrases of the Geneva Dialogues as the first 19. Some of their resemblance and paraphrases are, however, very striking. And before we get into that, let me say that the protocols, I know they're published on several websites. There's a copy of the protocols published under the references section of the Mein Kampf project at Christagenia, and I have been linking that to these podcasts, I believe, anyway. I think I did. I'm pretty sure I did. Grace is going to make his first comparison between the protocols and the dialogues. And from Protocols, page 77, page 77 of his copy, a loan is an issue of government paper which entails an obligation to pay interest amounting to a percentage of the total sum of the borrowed money. If a loan is at 5%, then in 20 years, the government would have unnecessarily paid out a sum equal to that of a loan in order to cover the percentage. In 40 years, it will have paid twice, and in 60, thrice that amount but the loan will still remain as an unpaid debt. And then he quotes Montesquieu from the Dialogues from page 250. How are loans made? 
by the issue of bonds entailing on the government the obligation to pay interest proportionate to the capital it has been paid. Thus, if a loan is at 5%, the state, after 20 years, has paid out a sum equal to the borrowed capital. When 40 years have expired, it is paid double. After 60 years, triple. Yet it remains debtor for the entire capital sum. And of course, those passages are very similar. We're not challenging that here, not on those grounds, but we can still well establish that the protocols are not a forgery of Maurice Jolie's book because of all the, the 95% of its other material, which are not found in the Jolie book, but which are just as profound. Now, here we see a, um, a basic prototype of the government system of issuing bonds that the Jewish central banks have set up in every nation on earth, except a few nations which Jews are trying to wage war with now, Libya, Syria, Iran, these Muslim nations that are anti-usury and have held out, and the Jews are trying to destroy them. If Iran or Syria would agree to a Jewish central bank, there would be no talk of war in those places in, in the Jewish media. It's that simple. If Adolf Hitler or, or the Tsar had, had, had agreed to a Jewish central bank, they'd still be in power today. Adolf Hitler would still be in power. Well, maybe not today. He'd be about 130 years old almost. But he would have been in power for a lot longer than 1945, I'll tell you that, if he had only agreed to that Jewish central bank. But generally speaking, back to Philip Graves, the protocols, 20 and 21, which deal, and he makes the parenthetical remark somewhat unconvincingly, with the financial program of the learned elders, owe less to the Geneva Dialogues. And we will see about that. Numbers 18 through 21 than to the imagination of the plagiarist author who had for once in a way, to show a little originality. This is natural enough, since the dialogues in question describe the actual financial policy of the French imperial government, while the protocols deal with the future, and that financial policy was implemented all over the place. Philip Graves could not have foreseen that, but the protocols did, and that's the point. Again, in the last four Geneva Dialogues, Machiavelli's Apotheosis of the Second Empire, being based upon historical facts which took place between 1852 and 1864, obviously furnished scanty material for the plagiarist who wished to prove, or very possibly had been ordered to prove in the protocols, that the ultimate aim of the leaders of Jewry was to give the world a ruler sprung from the house of David and they indeed have, about every single IMF president, World Bank president, um, Federal Reserve president has been a Jew. Of course, none of them are really from the House of David, but that is Philip Graves' lack of understanding. They were all Jews, and no Jew is from the House of David, but he wouldn't understand that. The scores of parallels, 
between the two books and a theory concerning the methods of the plagiarists and the reasons for the publication of the protocols in 1905 will be the subject of further articles. Meanwhile, it is amusing to find that the only subject with which the protocols deal on lines quite contrary to those followed by Machiavelli in the dialogues is the private life of the sovereign. The last words of the protocols are, our sovereign must be irreproachable. Well, you know something? All the U.S. presidents have been irreproachable. No matter what they did, you couldn't touch them until the time comes that the Jews want to get rid of them. So Bill Clinton was irreproachable. He was a filthy scumbag, but he was irreproachable. Barack Obama, the illegal alien and, and the faggot, well, he's irreproachable until the Jews decide that it's time to get rid of them. It, it's, um, there's really no difference except from a point of opinion between Machiavelli and the protocols. It's all opinion. The Jews control the opinion. The sovereign's irreproachable, no matter what he did. And we see that in every single United States presidential administration. The elders, evidently, this is back to graves, right? I can't pass up on, on making the comments. I just can't. The elders evidently proposed to keep the king of Israel, I say that with my tongue deeply implanted in my cheek, in great order. The historical Machiavelli was, we know, rather a scandalous old gentleman, and his shade or spirit insists that amorous adventures, so far from injuring a sovereign's reputation, make him an object of interest and sympathy to the fairest half of his subjects. Well, Bill Clinton was irreproachable, and half the liberal penny wastes in America had the hots for him. So women just fell all over him. Women, uh, we saw on the news in a, um, Barack Obama, he's one ugly SOB, and, and women were crooning for him. Jewish, probably Jewish communist women, but they were crooning for him, and they were fainting in the aisles when, when he spoke in, in his first campaigns. That they, the media created that, and with, with all of his stains and, and all of his sins, speaking in a worldly sense, he's irreproachable in the media. As soon as he does not do what the Jews want, he'll be gone. The media will tear him apart and he'll be gone, just like Richard Nixon and, and, and many others. So the media makes somebody irreproachable and the protocols are therefore not in conflict with Machiavelli or Maurice Jolie's version of Machiavelli. The scores of parallels between the two books and a theory concerning the methods of the plagiarist and the reasons for the publication of the protocols in 1905 will be the subject of further articles. Meanwhile, it is amusing 
to find that the only subject with which the protocols deal on lines quite contrary to those, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself, followed by Machiavelli in the dialogues is the private life of the sovereign. And the protocols say our sovereign must be irreproachable. Well, Jewish control of the media does that, while Machiavelli thought that if he was a cheating sex fiend, he would be more appealing and our politicians have proved that to be true as well. That is the end of the first of the three Philip Gray's articles. They're really rather short by themselves. We will now present the second, excerpted from the London Times for Wednesday, August 17th, the very next day. These were run over three days. They had to rush them out. It wasn't even over three weeks, like every Monday. It was three days, right in a row. Wednesday, August 17, 1921, pages 9 and 10, same, same two pages. And this is um, headlined, Jewish Peril Exposed, Historic Fake, Details of the Forgery, More Parallels. And it's also an introduction by the editor on this, and it says, we published yesterday an article from our Constantinople correspondent, which showed, not really, which showed that the notorious protocols of the elders of Zion, one of the mysteries of politics since 1905, were a clumsy forgery, the text being based on on a book published in French in 1865. Well, that's the copy in the British Museum. And Philip Gray's copy is 1864, but that's okay. The book, without title page, was obtained by our correspondent from a Russian source, and we were able to identify it with a complete copy in the British Museum. They did that pretty easily without a title, right? The disclosure, which naturally aroused without a title and with a different date and place of publication. That, that's really good detective work. The disclosure which, disclosure, which naturally aroused the greatest interest among those familiar with Jewish questions, finally disposes of the protocols as credible evidence of a Jewish plot against civilization. That's not true. We published below a second article which gives further close parallels between the language of the protocols and that attributed to Machiavelli and Montesquieu in the volume dated from Geneva. And, and there's confusion in this introduction because they say it's 1865, and that's the volume in the British Museum dated from Brussels. And now they're using that date, 1865, but the volume dated from Geneva, that was 1864, so they can't even get their introduction straight. Of course, the book was named in the introduction for the first Philip Graves article published the day before. It is odd that Graves himself did not have time to find the title of the book, but his editors readily found it in the British Museum. The first article hardly proved that the protocols were a forgery, yet the editors are already trumpeting the claim on some very thin evidence. This second part of three articles by Philip Gray was entitled, 
plagiarism at work. And again, the only byline says, from our Constantinople correspondent. Somehow I really think this may have been written by some Jew in, in the temple. While the Geneva Dialogues open with an exchange of compliments between Montesquieu and Machiavelli, which covers seven pages, the author of the Protocols plunges at once into the middle of things. He used the Latin term. I won't repeat it. One can imagine him, and Grace is writing a fantasy here, one can imagine him hastily turning over those first seven pages of a book which he has been ordered to paraphrase against time and angrily ejaculating. Now, there's a Jewish, there's a Jewish verb for you. Nothing here. But on page eight of the dialogues, he finds what he wants. The greater part of this page and the next are promptly paraphrased thus. And, and later in the series, we shall present evidence, and hopefully next week, that the protocols certainly are not a mere summary of the dialogues of Jolie, as Philip Graves so dishonestly claims them to be here. We do not have time to add the evidence to our presentation here and now because we want to get this crazy material presented, but we will present the evidence. And he goes on to make some um, comparisons. And this is from his copy of the Geneva Dialogues. We're trusting his translation. We don't have much of a choice at the moment. Geneva Dialogues, page 8. Among mankind, the evil instinct is mightier than the good. Man is more drawn to evil than to good. Fear and force have more empire over him than reason. Every man aims at domination, every Jew may be, not one, but would be an oppressor if he could. All or almost all are ready to sacrifice the rights of others to their own interests, and of course Christianity, and the political expression of Christianity in the 20th century, which is National Socialism, have exactly the opposite philosophy. And it continues, what restrains those beasts of prey, which they call men, from attacking one another? And this is a very Jewish outlook on, on the... Um, on the, the, the truly human male. Brute unrestrained force in the first stages of social life. Then the law. That is still force regulated by forms. You have consulted all historical sources. Everywhere, might precedes right. Political liberty is merely a relative idea. And that's not true at all in a Christian society. And then he quotes the Protocols, page one, from the Breton's edition. It must be noted that people with corrupt instinct are more numerous than those of noble instinct. Therefore, in governing the world, the best results are obtained by means of violence and intimidation, and not by academic discussions. And that's how the Jews have operated for the last 200 years and for the last 5,000 years, once they are properly identified. Every man aims at power, 
everyone would like to become a dictator if he could only do so, and rare indeed are the men who would not be disposed to sacrifice the welfare of others in order to attain their own personal aims. What restrained the wild beasts of prey which we call men? What has ruled them up to now? In the first stages of social life, they submitted to brute and blind force, then to law, which in reality is the same as force, only masked. From this, I am led to deduct that by the law of nature, right lies in might. Political freedom is not a fact, but an idea. And of course, that's the Jewish philosophy on life that we see practiced wherever we observe Jews. The gift of liberty, Graves continues, according to the Machiavelli of the Geneva Dialogues, of self-government according to the protocols, leads speedily to civil and social strife, and the state is soon ruined by internal convulsions or by foreign intervention following on the heels of civil war. Then follows a singular parallel between the two books which deserves quotation. And he's quoting the Geneva Dialogues from page 9. What arms will they, meaning states, employ in war against foreign enemies? Will the opposing generals communicate their plans of campaign to one another and thus be mutually in a position to defend themselves? Or will they mutually ban night attacks, traps, ambushes, battles with inequality of force? Of course not. Such combatants would court derision. Are you against the employment of these traps and tricks, of all the strategy indispensable to war against the enemy within, the revolutionary? And then for the protocols, page two. I would ask the question, why is it not immoral for a state which has two enemies, one external and one internal, to use different means of defense against the former, to that which it would use against the latter, to make secret plans of defense, to attack him by night or with superior forces. And of course, they both express the same tactical philosophy. The next section is subtitled, Right and Wrong. And Graves writes, or maybe it's Graves. Both Machiavelli and the author of the Protocols agree, almost in the same words, that politics have nothing in common with morality. Right is described in the Protocols as an abstract idea established by nothing. In the dialogues, it is an infinitely vague expression. The end, say both, justifies the means. And, of course, all of this is a thorough reflection of Talmudic Jewish thinking. And Graves continues, I pay less attention, says Machiavelli, to what is good and moral than to what is useful and necessary. The protocols use the same formula, substituting profitable for useful. According to the protocols, he who would rule must have recourse to cunningness and hypocrisy. In the second dialogue, Montesquieu reproaches Machiavelli for having 
only two words to repeat, force and guile. Sounds like our Jewish, our Jewish rabbis, historically, both Machiavelli and the elders of the Protocols preach despotism as the sole safeguard against anarchy. In the Protocols, the despotism has to be Jewish and hereditary. Machiavelli's despotism is obviously Napoleonic. I wouldn't know the difference. There are scores of other parallels between the books. Fully 50 paragraphs in the protocols are simply paraphrases of passages in the dialogues. There are actually several hundred paragraphs in the protocols, at least. The quotation, by me, kings reign, rightfully, rightly given in the VL France edition of the Protocols, while by me, King's rule is substituted in the English version, appears on page 63 of the Geneva Dialogues. Sola, whom the English version of the Protocols insists on calling Sila, appears in both books. Now, he gives a quote. After covering Italy with blood, Sulla reappeared as a simple citizen in Rome. No one durst touch a hair of his head. That's the Geneva Dialogues, page 159. And from the Protocols, page 51. Remember, at the time when Italy was streaming with blood, she did not touch a hair of Sulla's head. And he was the man who made her blood pour out. Now, in our version of the protocols posted in the Mein Kampf project, protocol number 15 does mention this passage. It does contain this passage, and it mentions Sulla twice. Graves here seems to be nitpicking on what was probably a misprint or a print setter's typesetter's error in his copy of the protocols. And, and everybody should understand, reading it, that it must be a reference to the Roman... The Roman despot, because he wasn't an emperor, Sulla of the first century BC, he actually preceded the time of Caesar. He um, took over the dictatorship at Rome and refused to cede it, which was customary. The Roman Republic appointed um, dictators for the terms or duration of a war, and after the war was won, the dictator was expected to turn back his authority, and Sulla did not. He maintained it for quite some time before he did turn it back. Sulla, who after the proscription stalked in savage grandeur home, is one of the tyrants whom every schoolboy knows and those who believe that elders of the 33rd degree are responsible for the protocols may say this is a mere coincidence. But what about the exotic Vishnu, the hundred-armed Hindu deity, who appears twice in each book? The following passages never were examples of unconscious plagiarism. 
And he quotes the Geneva Dialogues, page 141. Machiavelli, like the god Vishnu, my press will have a hundred arms, and these arms will give their hands to all the different shades of opinion throughout the country. And then from the protocols, these newspapers, like the Indian god Vishnu, will be possessed of hundreds of hands, each of which will be feeling the pulse of varying public opinion. Well, regardless of the sources, if these opinions were floating around the secret societies and found in the writings of the various secret Masonic lodges and secret societies of Europe. There's no reason why, just like the protocols have similarities and exact passages in some instances from many other writings of the secret societies, there's no reason why Maurice Jolie, who was a Mason himself and a bureaucrat in Napoleon's government, wouldn't have access to some of the same material that the authors of the protocols did. There's no problem with this. And there's another theory on this, which is just as valid, which we will discuss next week, which I thought was actually, um, what was actually also pretty well put together and, and very well could be another explanation of this, but I will get to that next week. Grace then quotes the other mention of this Vishnu from the Geneva, Geneva Dialogues, page 207. Again, the words of Montesquieu, or in this case, I'm sorry, the words of Montesquieu. Now I understand the figure of the god Vishnu. You have a hundred arms like the Indian idol, and each of your fingers touches a spring, speaking to Machiavelli. And then the protocols, page 65, our government will resemble the Hindu god Vishnu. Each of our hundred hands will hold one spring of the social machinery of state. The next section is subtitled Taxation of the Press. The dialogues and the protocols alike devote special attention to the press, and their schemes for muzzling and control thereof are almost identical. Absolutely identical indeed in many details. Thus, Machiavelli, on pages 135 and 136 of the Dialogues, expounds the following ingenious scheme. I shall extend the tax on newspapers to books, or rather, I shall introduce a stamp duty on books having less than a certain number of pages. A book, for example, with less than 200 or 300 pages will not rank as a book but as a brochure. I am sure you see the advantage of the scheme. On the one hand, I sin by taxation, that cloud of short books, which are the mere appendages of journalism. On the other hand, I force those who wish to escape stamp duty to throw themselves into long and costly compositions, which will hardly ever be sold and scarcely read in such a form. And then the protocols on page 41 has, we will tax the book press 
in the same manner as the newspaper press, that is to say, by means of excise stamps and deposits, but on books of less than 300 pages, we'll place a task, a tax, twice as heavy. These short books we will classify as pamphlets, which constitute the most virulent form of printed poison. These measures will also compel writers to publish such long works that they will be little read by the public and chiefly so on account of their high price. And then Graves says, both have the same profound contempt for journalists. The Geneva Dialogues, pages 145 and 146, Machiavelli. You must know that journalism is a sort of Freemasonry. Those who live by it are bound to one another by the ties of professional discretion, like the augurs of old. They do not lightly divulge the secret of their oracles. They would gain nothing by betraying themselves, for they have mostly one more or less discreditable, discreditable scars. And then for the protocols, page 44, already there exists in French journalism a system of Masonic understanding for giving countersigns. All organs of the press are tied by mutual professional secrets in the manner of the ancient oracles, very similar language. Not one of its members will betray his knowledge of the secret if the secret has not been ordered to be made public. No single publisher will have the courage to betray the secret entrusted to him, the reason being that not one of them is admitted into the literary wor world without bearing the marks of some shady act in his past life. Every time you see a newspaper reporter or a publisher exposed, you know that he wasn't obedient. Content for the people is the next section of Philip Graves' second article. But this contempt is nothing compared to that which both Machiavelli and the elders evince towards the masses, whom tyranny is to reduce to a more than oriental servitude. From the Dialogues, page 43, Machiavelli, you do not know the unbounded meanness of the peoples, groveling before force, pitiless towards the weak, implacable to faults, indulgent to crimes, incapable of supporting the contradictions of a free regime, and patient to the point of martyrdom under the violence of an audacious despotism, giving themselves masters whom they pardon for, for deeds for the least of which they would have beheaded 20 constitutional kings. And then from the Protocols, page 15. In their intense meanness, the Christian peoples help our independence. When kneeling, they crouch before power. When they are pitiless towards the weak, merciless in dealing with faults, and lenient to crimes. When they refuse to recognize the contradictions of freedom, when they are patient, to the degree of martyrdom in bearing with the violence of an audacious despotism at the hands of their present dictators, premiers, and ministers, they endure abuses for the smallest of which they would have murdered 20 kings. Attitude to the churches is the next section. Both the elders, 
cleaning the protocols. And Machiavelli proposed to make political crime thoroughly unpopular by assimilating the treatment of the political criminal to that of the felon. Both devote not a little attention to police organization and espionage. The creator of Machiavelli had evidently studied Napoleon III's, meaning the author Jolie, whom Graves supposedly does not know, had evidently studied Napoleon III's police methods and suffered at the hands of his agents. Each proposes to exercise a severe control over the bar and the bench. As regards the Vatican, Machiavelli-Napoleon, meaning that the Machiavelli role in the dialogues is really expressing the attitude of Napoleon III. As regards the Vatican, Machiavelli-Napoleon, with recent Italian history in mind, aims at the complete control of the papacy after inflaming popular hatred against the Church of Rome and its clergy. He will intervene to protect the Holy See as Napoleon III did intervene when the Chastots worked wonders, and chastpots were the military rifles in use at France at the time. The learned elders proposed to follow a similar plan. When the people, in their rage, throw themselves onto the Vatican, we shall appear as its protectors in order to stop bloodshed. Ultimately, of course, they mean to destroy the church, the terrible chiefs of a pan-Judaic conspiracy could hardly have any other plan of campaign. Machiavelli, naturally, does not go so far. Enough for him if the Pope is safely lodged in the Napoleonic pocket. It is necessary to produce further proofs that the majority of the protocols are simply paraphrases. Oh, I'm sorry, is it necessary to produce further proofs? That the majority of the protocols are simply paraphrases of the Geneva Dialogues with wicked Hebrew, and that's not really true, with wicked Hebrew elders. And finally, and, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, but I have to read the material, an Israelite, meaning a Jew, world ruler in the place of Machiavelli, Napoleon, and the brutish Goyim, Gentiles, substituted for the fickle masses, gripped in a vice by poverty, ridden by sensuality, devoured by ambition, which is exactly what the consumer society and the Jewish promotion of pornography do to people. That's exactly what they do. Whom Machiavelli intends to win. The questions now arise. How did the originals become known in Russia? And why were the protocols invented? 
In any event, it is absolutely certain that the political control of all of the West today is indeed patterned after the model put forth in the protocols. And by history alone, Grazer's false contentions are refuted. But he gives this handful, and as we have shown, and as we will show, it is only a handful of strikingly similar passages and almost exact verbiage in a handful of paragraphs between the protocols and Jolie's dialogues. He gives that as absolute proof that the protocols are entirely a summary of the dialogues, and that is absolutely not true because most of the material in the protocols is not found in the dialogues at all, as we have already seen from Nesta Webster, and we'll see from other sources. The following is the third of our three articles from Philip Graves. It's excerpted from the London Times for Thursday, August 18th, 1921, and again, it appeared on pages 9 and 10. The, um, the titles, the headlines of this article are The Protocol Forgery, Use in Russian Politics, Methods of secret police and some conclusions. And that'll probably be the best part of this presentation because Graves, I think, made some strange mistakes there, if indeed they were mistakes. The introduction from the editor reads, in articles from our Constantinople correspondent published yesterday and on Tuesday, we proved and the editors are, are, are asserting that this is proof, that the so-called protocols of the elders of Zion, which had been believed by some since their publication in 1905 to indicate a Jewish plot against civilization, were a clumsy forgery. Today, our correspondent reviews the use to which the protocols were put in recent Russian politics and summarizes his conclusions. And we're going to get right to Graves' final article and comment later. This third of three parts was entitled, The Protocols in Russia. There is no evidence as to how the Geneva Dialogues reached Russia. The following theory may be suggested, and Graves' theory is absolutely different to that postulated six or seven months earlier by Catherine Rodsiewill and Count Duchela. And he says, the third Napoleon secret police, many of whom were Corsicans, must have known the existence of the dialogues and almost certainly obtained them from some of the many persons arrested on the charge of political conspiracy during the reign of Napoleon III. In the last two decades of the 19th century and in the early years of the 20th, there were always a few Corsicans in the palace police of the Tsar and in the Russian Secret Service. Now, this article would have been 
a lot more informative if the editors of the London Times, when they found the copy of the protocols in the British Library, had only sent that information about the author and the title to Philip Graves, because he obviously had access to a telegraph. So, I, I mean, this is all, it, it's, a lot of this is just kind of silly, because it seems to be so contrived. And this paragraph would have easily been rewritten to include that information when Graves is still feigning ignorance. In the last two decades of the 19th century, and in the early years of the 20th, there were always a few Corsicans in the palace police of the Tsar and in the Russian Secret Service, combining courage with secretiveness, a high average of intelligence with fidelity to his chief. The Corsican makes a first-class secret agent or bodyguard. It is not improbable that Corsicans who had been in the service of Napoleon III or who had kinsmen in his secret service brought the Geneva Dialogues to Russia, where some members of the Akrana or some court official obtained possession of them. But this is only a theory. And while the theory is far-fetched, it is apparently true that Corsicans were employed in the police forces as, and as bodyguards, not only by the French courts of the Napoleons, and remember that Napoleon was a Corsican himself, but also the Romish popes, and also by the Russian Tsar. There were Corsicans in his employ in both of those vocations, secret agents and bodyguards. The next section of Philip Graves's last article, last segment, or last of his three-part series, is subtitled, Sergei Nihilus, and he says, as to the protocols, they were first published in 1905 at Tsarskoy Selo in the second edition of a book entitled The Great Within the Small, the author of which was Professor Sergei Nihilus. Professor Nihilus has been described to the writer as a learned, pious, credulous conservative who combined much theological and some historical erudition with a singular lack of knowledge of the world. I think that Sergei Nihilus, who understood that the Antichrist was about to take over Russia, had a damned good knowledge of the world. He saw the Jews coming, and 12 years later, they were there. Graves continues, in January 1917, Nihilus, according to the introduction to the French version of the protocols, published a book entitled, It Is Here at Our Doors, in which he republished the protocols. In this later work, according to the French version, Professor Nihilus states that the manuscript of the protocols was given him by Nikolovich Sukatin a noble who afterwards became the vice-governor of Stavropol. 
According to their 1905 edition of the Protocols, they were obtained by a woman who stole them from one of the most influential and most highly initiated leaders of Freemasonry. The theft was accomplished at the close of the secret meeting of the initiated in France, that nest of Jewish conspiracy. But in the epilogue to the English version of the Protocols, Professor Nihilus says... And he didn't write the English version, by the way. My friend found them in the safes at the headquarters of the Society of Zion, which are at present situated in France. According to the French version of the Protocols, Nihilus in his book of 1917 states that the Protocols were notes of a plan submitted to the Council of Elders by Theodore Herzl at the first Zionist Congress, which was held at Basel in August 1897 and that Herzl afterwards complained to the Zionist Committee of Action of the indiscreet publication of confidential information. The protocols were signed by, quote-unquote, Zionist representatives of the 33rd degree in Orient Freemasonry and were secretly removed from the complete file of the proceedings of the aforesaid Zionist Congress, which was hidden in the chief Zionist office, which is situated in French territory. Such are Professor Nihilus's rather contradictory accounts of the origin of the protocols. Not a very convincing story. Herzl, Theodore Herzl is dead, Sukotin is dead, and where are the signatures of the Zionist representatives of the 33rd degree? <clears throat> and in fact, Graves seems to have purposely created these seeming contradictions on his own by citing disparate portions of Nihilus' accounts, and as Webster and Bergmeister have shown, the accounts by both Nihilus himself and his son as to how he had attained the protocols were actually very consistent. Graves continues, Turning to the text of the Protocols and comparing it with that of the Geneva Dialogues, one is struck by the absence of any effort on the part of the plagiarist to conceal his plagiarisms. And this can simply be attributed to the fact that the original author was not concerned about being accused as a plagiarist, for which several alternative scenarios have been proposed which are just as valid but we will simply get onto it and address these things next week. The paraphrasing has been very careless. Parts of sentences, whole phrases at times, are identical. The development of the thought is the same. There has been no attempt worth mentioning to alter the order of the Geneva Dialogues. The plagiarist has introduced Darwin, Marx and Nietzsche in one passage in order to be up to date. He has given a Jewish color to Machiavelli's schemes for dictatorship, meaning the Machiavelli portrayed by Jolie in his dialogues. It's not the real Machiavelli, so it, Graves puts it in quotes, which is fair. But he has utterly failed to conceal his indebtedness to the Geneva Dialogues. Graves still doesn't know the proper title of Jolie's book. 
This gives the impression that the real writer of the protocols, who does not seem to have had anything to do with Nihilus, and may have been some quite unimportant presses writer, meaning a writer of summaries, employed by the court or by the Akrana, was obliged to paraphrase the original at short notice, meaning the Russian court. A proof of Jewish conspiracy was required at once as a weapon for the conservatives against the liberal elements in Russia. And the protocols are certainly not a mere summary or preface of the dialogues that may be um, pronounced as precis, I believe, since the material they share in common only represents a small portion of the body of the protocols. A priestess writer could not have produced the protocols, not a priestess writer of the dialogues anyway, maybe a priestess writer of some other document like the Talmud, but not of the dialogues. Furthermore, the documented troubles which Niles had in getting the protocols past the Russian press censors in 1905 is by itself enough proof that they were not produced by Russian police or by the court, or Nihilus would have never had a problem getting them through the Russian censors. We will address the error of Graves' assertions here more fully in our next portion of the series. Graves goes on to say, Mr. X, the discoverer of the plagiarism, informs me that the protocol, shortly after their discovery in 1901, four years before their publication by Professor Nihilus, served a subsidiary purpose, namely the first defeat of Monsieur Philippe, a or Philippe, or however the hell you want to say Philip in French, a French hypnotist and thought reader who acquired considerable influence over the Tsar and the Tsaritsa at the beginning of the present century. The court favorite was disliked by certain great personages and incurred the natural jealousy of the monks. Thaumaturgists, that's an interesting word. The Greek thauma means a wonder or a marvel. A thaumaturgist is probably a magician or something like that. And similar adventurers who hope to capture the czar through the empress in their own, descent, in their own interest or in that of various cliques. Philippe was not a Jew, but it was easy to represent a Frenchman from that nest of Jewish conspiracy as a Zionist agent. Philippe fell from favor to return to Russia and find himself once more in the court's good graces at a later date. Now this Monsieur Philippe was evidently a charlatan, even Trotsky described him as a charlatan, who claimed to be a seer and served as an advisor to the Tsar. One of the intelligence officers who they claim was involved in the plot which created the protocols 
is said to have been dismissed in 1902 for, for filing a report exposing this um, Philippe character, but was brought back after the 1905 revolution. And we will discuss that to a greater extent next week. The next section and the penultimate section of Graves' third article is subtitled, The First Revolution. And he says, but the principal importance of the protocols was their use during the first Russian revolution. This revolution was supported by the Jewish element in Russia, notably by the Jewish bond. The Akhrana organization knew this perfectly well. This is a reference to 1905. It had its Jewish and crypto-Jewish agents, one of whom afterwards assassinated Stalipin. It was in league with the powerful conservative faction, with its allies it sought to gain the Tsar's ear. For many years, before the Russian Revolution of 1905 and 1906, there had been a tale of a secret council of rabbis who plotted ceaselessly against the Orthodox. The publication of the Protocols in 1905 certainly came at an opportune moment for the conservatives. It is said by some Russians that the manuscript of the Protocols was communicated to the Tsar early in 1905 and that its communication contributed to the fall of the liberal prince Sviatopolk Mirsky in that year and the subsequent strong reactionary movement. However, it may be the date and place of publication of Nihilus's first edition of the Protocols are most significant now that we know that the originals were given him, which were given him, were simply paraphrases. And we have already discussed in prior segments of this presentation the attestation of Nihilus that he had indeed brought the Protocols to the attention of the Grand Duke, Sergei Alexandrovich. Alexandrovitz, but was, or Alexandrovitch, but was only told that it was too late to act on them. Virtually the same words he had also attested to hearing from Sukhotin when the protocols were first entrusted to him, that it was too late to act on them. The plot which the Protocols reveals, was far too advanced in Russia. Furthermore, Nihilus first attempted to have the Protocols published as a smaller and standalone book, and the Russian censors would not permit him for fear of undue reprisals against supposedly innocent Jews. Therefore, Graves' assertions here are rendered meaningless. They are rendered more meaningless once we understand that in 1903, I believe it was, there was a Russian newspaper that ran the protocols in series. So these things were published in Russia before Nihilus himself first had the opportunity to publish them in Russia. So all of this just crumbles Graves's theory here on the use 
and timely appearance of the protocols in 1905. It's just a lie. Now, Graves makes conclusions, and we're going to really be interested in his last, in, in his last conclusion and his summary, but I won't skip ahead. And under his conclusions, he says, the following conclusions are, therefore, forced, and no, they're not. It's certainly a lie. Forced upon any reader of the two books who has studied Nihilus' account of the origin of the protocols and has some acquaintance with Russian history, in the years preceding the revolution of 1905-1906, one, the protocols are largely a paraphrase of the book here provisionally called the Geneva Dialogues, and actually, in reality, only about 5% or so of the material in the protocols is also found in the dialogues. So they can't be a paraphrase even if several passages are indeed nearly identical. They still can't be a paraphrase. And we will address that through another author next week in our presentation. And number two of Graves' conclusions. <laughs> they were designed to foster the belief among Russian conservatives, and especially in court circles, that a prime cause of discontent among the politically-minded elements in Russia was not the repressive policy of the bureaucracy, but a worldwide Jewish conspiracy. And we would agree with that. They thus served as a weapon against the Russian liberals who urged the Tsar to make certain concessions to the intelligentsia. Three, the protocols were paraphrased very hastily and carelessly. That's certainly not true at all, since 95% of the material in the protocols are not paraphrased from Jolie. And four, such portions of the protocols, and this is pretty good, I think Graves made a huge mistake here, and I checked the reading of this sentence twice against the copies of the PDFs that I scanned from the original London Times articles. Such portions of the protocols, this is Graves' conclusion, as were not derived from the Geneva Dialogues, were probably supplied by the Akrana, the Russian secret police, or whatever, which organization, and this is the, this part really gives it away, which organization very possibly obtained them from the many Jews it employed to spy on their co-religionists. Religionists, I'm sorry. Let me read this again. This is striking. Such portions of the protocols as were not derived from the Geneva Dialogues were probably supplied by the Akrana, which organization very possibly obtained them from the many Jews it employed to spy on their co-religionists. Now, the Akrana did indeed employ many Jews. It used many Jews overseas, too. This is an odd statement by Graves, since it proves the protocols to be exactly what they claim to be. This is striking. Why would Graves say this? 
Why did Nesta Webster not notice this? And if she did, why did she not take advantage of it? So far as I have seen, I haven't seen any reference by Nesta Webster or any other writer to this fourth conclusion by Graves. I might read it again. Graves is basically saying that whatever is in the protocols that did not come from the Geneva Dialogues actually did come from the Jews. That's what Graves is saying. I can't get over this. That is what Graves is saying. Such portions of the protocols as were not derived from the Geneva Dialogues were probably supplied by the Akrana, the secret police, which organization very possibly obtain them from the many Jews that employed to spy on their co-religionists. Grace is admitting that if something in the protocols didn't come from the Geneva Dialogues, it did come from the Jews. That's Grace's admission. That's like, that's just funny to me. I can't stop laughing over that one. I don't know if Graves meant to say it that way, but that's the way the original article reads. And Graves then says, and this is even just as striking, so much for the protocols. They have done harm, not so much in the writer's opinion, by arousing anti-Jewish feelings which is older than the protocols and will persist. This guy sounds like Hitler now and will persist in all countries where there is a Jewish problem until that problem is solved. That's Graves. That sounds like Mein Kampf, but that's Philip Graves. Rather, they have done harm by persuading all sorts of mostly well-to-do people that every recent manifestation of discontent on the part of the poor is an unnatural phenomenon, a factitious agitation caused by a secret society of Jews. And, and here Graves admits an ages-old Jewish problem which needs to be solved. We can pick the rest of Graves' conclusions in these articles apart, and we will, but in these last two, he actually helps our cause more than he hurts. And we can only wonder why he wrote these things while attempting to assist the Jews. Maybe he's trying to sound fair and balanced, kind of like Fox News, but these two statements are really... To me, they're really pretty amazing. But here is the most glaring problem with Philip Graves' assessment of the protocols. He admits not knowing who it was that had written the dialogues. All he has is a date and the circumstances by which he can identify the reign of Napoleon III. And therefore, he could not have understood, if all he has is a date and he don't know who wrote this, he could not have understood the actual origins of the dialogues or the entire motive behind their having been written. But, even though he admits not knowing the author, 
he immediately jumps to the conclusions that the protocols are forged from them when he can really only make assumptions about the true origin of the protocols as well. So Graves claims to have the proof far before the pudding is ever mixed and set and jumps to conclusions he would never be able to support his fact. So whether in the long run he is proven right or not is immaterial. This, the fact that Graves jumped to these conclusions without even knowing who wrote the book, this alone betrays the fact that Graves' motives must have been predetermined. To use the dialogues in order to discredit the protocols in spite of any of, that, any of the facts concerning the authorship of either proves that his motives must have been predetermined, that he must have wanted ahead of time to come to the conclusions which he did. So he picks out some of the certain similarities, which are beyond doubt, and then he makes the claim, which is an absolute lie, that all of the protocols are simply a summary of the of of the um a summary of the Jolie work that he doesn't even know who wrote. But then he makes this weird statement at the end that if something in the protocols is not from the Geneva Dialogues, then it was very possibly from the Jews. So he's claiming the protocols are a forgery, but out of the other side of his mouth, he's telling us that the protocols are true and valid. And that's all for tonight. And I think that's all pretty damned entertaining. I will be here next week with the prophecy of Haggai and Yahweh willing, another segment of the Protocols of Satan.